This is the Austin Life Church podcast. For more information, please visit us at austinlifechurch.com. Morning, how are we? Howdy. Howdy, it's a good Aggie welcome. Love that. Love that for all of us Aggies here. Um, what? What was that? Okay, for the Aggie. Okay, all right. I didn't know if you're mocking or what over there. It's fine. Never, never, never. That. The Aggies never deserve to be mocked, ever. So we're going to be in Psalm 34 today as Charlie read. If you have a Bible and you want to go ahead and turn to that, uh, we'll also be in 1 Samuel 21, 22 and Psalm 56. So if you're like, want to tear some paper off and mark those ahead of time, uh, by all means, do so. Uh, also give you the heads up if you're using electronic version. But the, ver- the verses should all be on the screen. I'll just try to stand far enough back to not block it. Um, I'm just afraid I'm then going to hit these things, which I probably would because I'm a mover. Uh, how many of you have seen, I, I, I didn't think I'd have to ask this question until uh, I was talking to someone um, wh- whom you th- would think had seen this movie um, in the children's world of things, um, but, but she hasn't seen this movie. How many of you, show of hands, has seen The Little Mermaid? You know what? Better question. Let's just go ahead and put it out there. Who has not seen The Little Mermaid? Raise it. Either. 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 Little Mer- Raise it high. Okay. Okay. Well, yeah. so, someone is not raising their hand high that I know has not seen it. Oh my gosh, it was Aladdin. That's silly. I'm, the, I'm broken. Okay, Sh- raise your hand if you have not seen Aladdin. Just the one. Oh man, no, there's two. There's two. Okay, okay, three. All right. So if you're thinking of Aladdin, curious, what in your mind is the most iconic scene? There it is. Come on. When did you last let your heart decide? Okay, what, that is the magic carpet scene, right? Is that what most of you would think of? Yeah, that, what's that? Yeah, the other one that I heard was the, the lion scene at the beginning, the sand. Um, I heard that one or the, the original number from the genie. But, but I do think by and large, the, the magic carpet ride is the predominant, like iconic scene thought of that. And so uh, if you haven't seen the movie, I'll try to give you some context here. For everyone else, you'll know quickly, right? It is that uh, Prince Aladdin is, is giving her an invitation to step outside of the castle walls and experience the world for herself, right? Don't, don't just read about it in books. Don't just hear other people tell you about the wonders of the world, but but get outside, go and live a little bit and experience the, the amazingness of this world that all that has to offer, right? Um, over, under, and, and sideways to a magic, whatever the w- lyrics are, right? And she responds to him. She's like, how am I supposed to do that? Like, I'm under lock and key here, right? I can't just walk out of the front door. They don't let me out of the, the walls, right? Y- y- y'all with me? And so then Aladdin he says he walks to the edge of her balcony because she's on like the, I don't know, second, third, 15th floor, whatever it is, right? He walks to the edge and he says, sometimes you just, you got to take a risk. And then he steps off, right? And she's like, no, he just died, right? But then what does he do? He rises back up on the magic carpet. And she's like, how are you doing that? And what does he say? Do you trust me? Boom, nailed it. That's what I'm talking about, Michael. Yes, do you trust me? And she 
then has a choice. She can turn back around and go and live in her safe quarters, go and read her books, go and hear about life from other people, or she can trust him and step forward and get on that magic carpet ride and the rest is history, right? Go and live life for herself, see it with her own eyes, taste it for herself. That's the invitation we have today. The invitation we have from David is not just to read about the goodness of God, is not just to let others who have gone before us tell us about it, it is not just to hear about it from, from different voices, but for us today, the invitation for you and for me today, if the Bible is what it says it is, which is living and active for us, the invitation is for you and for me to taste and see that the Lord is good for ourselves. That we can have the same understanding and experience of the God of the Bible that David did that Peter did, that Mary did, that, that Paul did. Taste and see that the Lord is good. David begins this psalm, verse one. It says of David, which when he changed his behavior before Abimelech so that he drove him out and he went away. That's important, that'll come up in a second. Then he says, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Da David is saying that he is continually praising the Lord. It's a, it's a lifestyle of, of praise, both internally, his thoughts and his affections for God, and externally, what he says, what he sings, how he lives, right? He's living a lifestyle of, of wholehearted devotion and praise to the Lord. And then he turns to those listening, and he says, let the humble hear and be glad. Magnify the Lord with me. Hey, come and let us exalt his name together. David is praising God, but he's also giving an invitation to those who are hearing him, who are reading his words. Hey, hey, this is not just for me. Come and exalt God with me. Magnify, praise the Lord from your heart, from your mouth, from your life. Come and praise the Lord with me. Now, I know this is gonna seem like elementary and, and we're all here in a church service so it's like duh but but let me just take this out to remind us that the object of praise is the lord the the reason we we gather and we come to exalt his name and to worship is to praise god it, it's very it's like of course but it's it's very easy and subtle for us to take this time and make it inward about us what am i getting out of this did this meet my needs? Was I pleased with that interaction? Do I find what I'm looking for? And not that those things are, are bad, but they are not primary. The primary object of worship should be the Lord God. The temptation that we do have is, is for us to try to slide in there as well, right? But, but the object is, is God. Let us magnify the Lord together. Now what's interesting about this psalm is who David is speaking to when he's inviting them to come in and to, to wholeheartedly worship God. Like I said, um, if we read the prescript, it gives us a little context of when David wrote this psalm. Right, I, I, like, I think sometimes we just forget that it's actual people that, that are, this is like a journal entry from David's journal. 
right? That at some point he's sitting there, he's, he's writing down this song. And it says in the, the prescript that he wrote this psalm, Psalm 34, when he changed his behavior before Abimelech so that he drove him out and he went away. The context of that is 1 Samuel chapter 21. It's 1 Samuel chapter 21. And, and so since this is in past tense, this is after he had been delivered from Abimelech, right? What follows 1 Samuel 21? Typically, 22 follows 21, right? In, in, in most normal things, right? So if we look at 1 Samuel 22, right? After David had been delivered from Abimelech, we'll come back to Abimelech in a second. But if we look at verse, uh, chapter 22, we see who David is writing this psalm to, who he's inviting to come and to worship God wholeheartedly. 1 Samuel 22, verse 1. David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. And everyone who was in distress and everyone who was in debt and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him. And he became commander over them. And there were about 400 men. David has formed a, a community, a church, so to say, of 400. And, and how does it describe them? Chipper, up, you know, encouraging, happy-go-lucky people, right? No, everyone who was bitter in soul, distressed, and in debt. What a crowd, huh? What a cr that, that's the crowd, that's the context that David is looking at those people who are distressed, who are in debt, and who are bitter in their soul. And he says, let's magnify the Lord together. Come on, let's exalt the Lord together. You ever felt distressed? Like just anxious and stressed in your life? It's probably... It, what are those like word collages that if you took someone's emails or everything and like put together the words that are most often said and the bigger words are the ones that are said the most? It, anyone know what I'm talking about? What are those called? Word collages? Clouds, thank you. It's a word cloud, right? right. For us, one of the words that would probably be biggest in, in, in this season is stress. Anyone else, would that be a big word for you? It's just one that Stephanie and I say way too much, Right? You ever been in debt, either financially or relationally you owe someone, or just in captivity, you're not free? You ever been bitter in your soul, resentful, angry? This psalm is for you. This is who the psalm, it's written to those people. This psalm is for, for me. I've been stressed. I've been bitter. The, this weekend, I was told a couple people, you know, I've, I found myself comparing myself to other pastors and churches. That never goes well. Comparison is the thief of joy because either you're, you come out on top and you're arrogant and you think you're better or, or, which tends to happen for me, come out underneath and you're not good enough. You don't measure up. It's never, it's never good. It's bitter though. I was angry. I was like, God, why, why do they have the context, right? Like some, some, some Mark and Rachel moved from here to Nashville recently. They go into this church, and recently the, the church was like, hey, we've been given this building. And it's like, oh, my gosh, are you kidding me? I was bitter. I was bitter. This psalm is for me. It's an invitation to come as we are 
and yet to magnify and exalt the Lord wholeheartedly. Now, what is powerful enough to compel us in spite of our stress and our debts and our bitterness to, to put all that aside and magnify and worship God? What could legitimately, not, not, not the fake, like I can come in here and sing a song and I know how to smile because it's awkward if I'm like, hey, here's, where, here's my junk, right? You know, have you ever, someone's like, how are you doing? And you're like, this is terrible. And they're like, oh, <laughs> look at the time. You don't wear a watch. I know, but it's time. I got to get out of here, right? Like, you know, but for real, like what is going to compel us in those moments of stress and bitter and anger and debt and frustration to go, I'm going to praise the Lord wholeheartedly. David tells us in verses 4 through 7, I sought the Lord, and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. You see, those who look to him, they're radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man, I cried out, and the Lord heard and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. David's like, hey guys, I, I was right where you were. Like the fears had surrounded me. I was bitter at where I was. I was stressed out because I didn't know how to make it literally to the next week or the next month. I was right where you were, but I, I sought the Lord. I called out to him and he answered me and he delivered me and he rescued me from all of my fears. Because listen, those who look to him, he's not going to let you down. You won't be humiliated by him. You'll be radiant like Moses. You'll shine in his presence. For, for those of you who are distressed and, and bitter and in debt, the, if, you, if you look to him, if you fear the Lord, it says, then his angel encamps around you. David's saying, I, I lived it. I know it. That's why I'm praising the Lord because I know that he is, he's my rescuer because that's what the Lord does to those who fear him. That's what the Lord, David says, does for those who look to him and seek, seek him and take refuge in him. The Lord rescues them and answers them and is near to them. That's why we worship God because of who God is, because of what he's done for us. It reminds me, especially verse 7, of uh, the story of Elisha and, and his servant. In 2 Kings chapter 6, if you want to read this story later, right? Elisha is the prophet of God, meaning that he would hear the word from God and then deliver it to God's people, to Israel. And so at the time, uh, the king of Aram was at war with Israel. But he could, he could never strategically get in the right place to overtake Israel because God would tell Elisha what his next move was, and Elisha would tell the king of Israel, so they were always one step ahead. They always had an insider's look, almost like they, they, were, they, ha they had inside access to what the king of Aram was trying to do because God was telling Elisha, and Elisha was telling the king of Israel. And so the king of Aram was like, well, then let's take out Elisha. Let's take out the prophet of God and then they no longer have access by God to what we are doing. And so it says in 2 Kings 6 that the king of Aram sent an entire legion of, of, of soldiers, of horses and chariots and soldiers and they surrounded the tent that Elisha and his servant were in one night. 
completely surrounded. So morning comes, and you know the, the servant of Elisha you know, comes, steps out, and he walks out of the tent you know, to greet the morning, right? stretch it out, and he walks out, and what does he see? Literally, horses and chariots and soldiers completely surrounding the two men. I, I mean, how would you respond to that? Right, like how would you respond? It's not, it's not one or two or three, or like maybe a dozen if they get lucky, they could take him. No, it's hundreds. And so he goes back in the tent, and he's like, Elisha, hey man, we're in trouble. Bro, like we, we're done. There's no way out of this. There's no escape. And what does Elisha say to him? Hey, don't be afraid. I mean, come on, put yourself there. I'd, I'd probably want to punch him. Like, don't act all tough and mighty, dude. We're about to get our throats cut. And that might be gentle. D don't be afraid. How, how are we not going to be afraid? And Elisha says, because those who are with us are more than those who are with them. All right, now, now you've done, now you're crazy. Now, now you're, you're just, you're, you've lost it. Bro, I've been outside. I saw the army against us. What are you talking about? And it says that Elisha prayed that God would open his eyes. Not his physical eyes, because old boy's seeing just fine. His spiritual eyes. And he prays, and God opens his eyes, and Elisha says, look. And he looks, and outside of the army that had surrounded them was an army of God's angels that had surrounded them. He's like, man, we're all right. We're gonna be just fine. You see, because that's what the Lord does to those who look to Him and fear Him. Oh, in, in 2023, like we like to have it all figured out in science and technology, and we don't like to think much about the spiritual realm. But but we'd have to discount a whole lot of the Bible if we don't want to think about that. There is an opponent that wants to steal, kill, and destroy that wants to take your eyes off of God and fix it on the struggles and the challenges around us, the fears around us. And God is saying, hey, look to me. I've got, you. I've got your back. There are literally angels of the Lord that surround those who fear God, who look to him. You don't need to be afraid. We don't need to be afraid. This would be a, a good time to give the context of of why David is writing this, right? He's looking back. He's talking about a deliverance that God had brought. So what's the context that we see? Well, if we go back to 1 Samuel 21, right? Because the psalm tells us that, that this was a psalm David wrote after he was driven away from Abimelech. So if we go to 1 Samuel 21, verse 10, it says, David rose and fled that day from Saul and went to Akshish, the king of Gath. And the servants of Akshish said to him, Is not this David the king of the land? Did they not sing to one another of him in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. And David took these words to heart and was much afraid of Akshish, the king of Gath. So he changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane in their hands and made marks on the doors of the gate and let his spittle run down his beard. Then Akshish said to his servants, Behold, you see the man is mad. Why then have you brought him to me? Do I lack madmen that you've brought this fellow to behave as a madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? 22 chapter 1, 22 verse 1, David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. If you look in verse 10, we see two names, Saul and Akshish. 
Saul was uh, David's on David's side. David was an Israelite. Saul was the king of Israel. But it says that David is running from Saul. He's fleeing for his life. Why? Because in 1 Samuel 17, there was this giant by the name of Goliath, a Philistine giant, who was tormenting Israel and was just killing people left and right. And all of Israel was afraid to go face him mano y mano. But then this little shepherd boy, David, literally wasn't in the army, brought his brother's lunch and was like, why isn't nobody fighting this guy? The Lord, my God, will deliver me. I'll fight him. And he runs into battle with a slingshot and some rocks against Goliath and kills Goliath. Well, earns himself a reputation, yeah? So now all of Israel is like, dude, David's the man. Like Saul, yeah, he's killed some, but look at David. He's killed his tens of thousands. And so in Saul's mind, he's now got a rival to his throne. And so he's like, I got to kill this dude. I got to get rid of him. And so David is literally on the run from his home because the king of Saul, the king, the king Saul is jealous and envious and wants him dead. And so David is on the run and he runs to Akshish, the king of Gath. You remember where that Philistine giant Goliath was from? Gath. So David is running into enemy camp thinking he'll be safe there. Perhaps they won't recognize him. Well, they, they do. They recognize him because he's killed their giant, their, their victorious giant Goliath and many others. And so they bring him into prison either to kill him or to use him in warfare in some capacity. And we may wonder like, how do we know that David like is in prison? I mean, if it's me, I'm killing him right on the spot. Like done, like dude, you're an enemy. Well, let's, get, let's get rid of you, right? But they, they bring him into prison for some reason and we know this from Psalm 56. So if you have your Bibles marked, if you have your phones, you wanna go to Psalm 56. That Psalm begins by saying to the choir master, according to the dove on far off Terebinths, a mictum of David when the Philistines seized him in Gath. Be gracious to me, O God, for man tramples on me. All day long an attacker oppresses me. My enemies trample on me all day long, for many attack me proudly. Verse five says, all day long they injure my cause. All their thoughts are against me for evil. They stir up strife, they lurk, they watch my steps as they have waited for my life. See, Psalm 34 is written after He's delivered in Psalm 56. Psalm 56, he's in prison in Philistine camp. Psalm 34, he's on the other side of it. He's been delivered and rescued. So Psalm 34 is writing from the context that, that he has been set free, that he has been delivered, that he has been rescued, that he called out to God and God showed up. He looked to God, he sought to God, and God came through. Look, I, I, I pray and I hope, and odds are none of us will ever be in a similar situation as David was. Like, I hope we won't be prisoners of war. I hope that we won't be literally held captive, very likely to be put to death as David was. But I do know that all of us have very real stressors and very real sources of bitterness and very real debts, and very real broken parts of our life. It could be physical sickness or limitations that we have. 
It could be emotional or mental health and, and just dark depressions. It could be um, just uh, vices that have a grip on us rather than us having a grip on them. Or it could be uh, tangible help, like you need a home or a job or you, you need money to pay the rent. Right? All of us, it, we're maybe not in literally prison of, of war, but we've got similar situations where, where the bottom has given way. The, the walls of our safe earth, our safe world that makes sense to us have just started to crumble, and now we're in a place where nothing is making sense. And the storm of life is, is just raging in, and fears are covering us left and right. My guess is most of us have encountered that at least once at some point. And if you haven't, the day is coming. When the world and the life we live in, it, it doesn't, it, it's falling apart. And we're terrified, and we don't know how to be free, and we don't know how to have life, and we don't know how to have healing. And David says, look to the Lord. Call out to him. He rescues us from our afflictions. He's near to you. His angel encamps around you. Man, I don't, I don't know about y'all, but I want a relationship with God like that. Right? I want a relationship with God where I don't just think like maybe, but I know in my soul that I'm going to call out to God and he's going to hear me. That when I look to him, he is not missing and when I seek him, he's to be found, that I can know God like this. And here's the good news. Taste and see for yourselves that the Lord is good. It's right there. It's an invitation not just to worship God, but to know for yourselves how good he is. You don't just have to read what David knew, but we can know the God of the Bible. We can taste and see how good he is. David says that even, look at the lions, right? The young lions, they suffer and, and they lack and they have wants, but those who fear the Lord will lack no good thing. Your know, fears are gonna surround and press in. The securities of life will give way. Stressors will come you will be tempted for bitterness and resent and anger, but those who look to the Lord, those who fear the Lord, lack no good thing. Church, if to let you into the most common prayer that I have for you, it is this. We would taste and see how good he is. Y'all, I don't, if, if you come to this church and all you do is check a church religious box, go somewhere else. It's just not worth it. If we don't taste and see the goodness of God for ourselves, find the church that leads us there and tell me because I want to come too. That, that's, that's, the, that's it. Paul talks in Philippians 3, he says that knowing Christ is of surpassing value than everything else he had accomplished in his life. David writes in Psalm 16 that the fullness of joy is in his presence. Jesus says in John 10 that he came that we would have abundant life. 
this is it for us or nothing. We, we taste and see that the Lord is good or we move on and look somewhere else. Because it's not just something that we, can, we have to know about Job. At the end of Job, he says, I've, I've heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now I see you. That's, that's the point of the scripture. That's the point of the Bible. It's not to get you in a church or a community group or to make you a good moral church person. The point of the Bible is for you to know the living God of the world, to taste and see how good he is, that he's far greater than anything this world has to offer. That's what we're aiming for, taste and see that the Lord is good. Do you want this? You've got to ask in your heart, in your mind, do, do you want Psalm 34, 8? I was talking with a friend recently who his, his girlfriend is just struggling to believe that God's love is for her. And I'm like, man, David rallied up all the people that were distressed and bitter and in debt and angry, and, and this psalm is for them. Yeah, yeah, no, it's for us. God's love is for us. Do you want this? That's what you have to first decide. I'm going to assume yes. So then I want to ask David the question, How? Like, how do we have this beyond just an idea or a church practice or something that makes me feel good about myself? In verses 4 and 10, he talks about seeking the Lord. In verses five, verse 5, he talks about looking to the Lord. In verse 6, he talks about crying out to the Lord. In verse 8, he talks about taking refuge in the Lord. And those are all aspects of how we taste and see. We look to him, we cry out to him, we take refuge in him. But in verse 7, 9, and 11 is where I think you get the, the summary of how we taste and see that the Lord is good. And you see the common phrase, fear the Lord. Those who fear the Lord lack no good thing. Those who fear the Lord, the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear the Lord will look to him. Those who fear the Lord will call out to him. Those who fear the Lord will take refuge in him. If you want to taste and see that the Lord is good, fear the Lord. So now what in the world does that mean? Well, David tells us in verse 11, hey, come on, children, listen. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. I got you. Let me, let me tell you what the fear of the Lord is. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good. God, God is for you. He's for the fullness of life for you. It's in fearing the Lord. So, so what is that? It, in this psalm, we have two different Hebrew words for fear. Right In verse 4, the Lord answered him from all his fears, it is the Hebrew word megruotai. It, it's fear, terror. Ah! Right? Like, I'm scared. That, that's what verse 4 is. Verse 7, 9, and 11 is a totally different Hebrew word. It's from the root yirat. Respect, reverence, awe. Wow. I can stand on the edge of the Grand Canyon 
just marvel at how incredible it is and how small I am. I could be afraid because let's be honest, the Grand Canyon could eat me up and spit me out, right? But, but if approached the right way, it's wow. I could stand at the base of a, of a snow mountain and just coming from Texas, right? And you're like, oh my gosh, what, what is this thing? I don't even, there's white stuff, right? I can just be in awe. And I can also know that if there's an avalanche, this thing could totally take me out. Right? There, there's a proper fear and respect and awe. It's different from, I'm afraid. That's where David was, but it was his fear, his awe, his respect of the Lord that brought him out of that fear. I read um, from Douglas Sean O'Donnell. So if you want to take a, a picture of this, it'll give you multiple references. Are you able to get rid of me? Um, be easier, there we go. Be easier picture. According to the book of Proverbs, the fear of the Lord is a continual, humble, and faithful submission to Yahweh, which compels one to hate evil and turn away from it, and brings with it rewards better than all earthly treasures, the rewards of a love for and a knowledge of God, and long life, confidence, satisfaction, and protection. It's a humble submission to God that compels me to hate what he hates and love what he loves. If we look more at what David says in the remaining verses about the fear of the Lord, he says, keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. It's a good phrase to remember the fear of the Lord. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. What's clear from the rest of this is that a part of fearing the Lord is doing good. It's being obedient to what he says. The face of the Lord is toward the righteous. The, the ear of the Lord is toward those who are following him in obedience. When the righteous call out, the Lord hears and responds and, and, and does good for them. So a part of fearing the Lord is following him in obedience. It's being near to him. It's doing what he says. Does anyone have like a, a, a vocational um, role model idol? A any anyone? Is that, is that a thing? Does that happen? Brandon, you do? Or were you just like eating food? I, I couldn't tell what was happening. You do? Okay. Okay. So a, a, another pastor in the area, mine was Tim Keller. So similar world, right? So if you had a chance to intern with Chandler, my guess is you would want to be near him. You would want to learn from him, to listen to him, to, to, to see what he does. And if he says, hey, Brandon, do this, right? You would think, okay, I, I trust this guy. I respect this guy. I look up to this guy. I will do this. But if, as an intern, you're following someone that you say you respect, but you never show up, 
You, you, never, you never listen to what they say, right? They're like, hey, do this. And you're like, I'm going to go this way instead, right? Like, you are separating yourself from the eye of that person, from the ear of that person, from the nearness of that person, right? But if you're like, hey, I, I will watch, I will lean into, I will look to you, I will listen to you, I will do what you say, you're endeared, like you're, you, you, we are making that choice. Does that make sense? So we can't be like, oh man, God's gonna hear me while I'm actively living in wickedness opposed to him. Hey God, call out for rescue while I'm disrespecting and dishonoring and disobeying you. Like, sin is my choice to move away from God. Righteousness is my choice to move near to God, to be near him. And so David is clear, right? Like, our obedience to him matters. We're insulting him and kidding ourselves if we think I can live however I want to live, but don't worry, God is my genie in the bottle, and as soon as I call out to him, everything's fixed. It, it, that's, it doesn't make sense he, among people. Why do we think like, oh, well, God, you owe me. Do better. I don't know. Fearing the Lord is obeying the Lord. It is doing what he says to do. Don't insult God and don't kid yourself to think otherwise. But obedience is only part of fearing the Lord. And it's the second part. It's not the first part. And it must go in this order. Fearing the Lord is trusting the Lord and then stepping in obedience. Fearing the Lord is turning away from evil, turning away from life my way, and choosing to turn to him, to trust him as the source of truth, and then stepping in obedience, and it must go in that order. Think about Jasmine, right? Before she steps on that carpet, she has to make the internal decision, I do trust you, Aladdin. I, I will therefore step. She's not stepping on that carpet if she doesn't trust him, right? My, my, come on. If she doesn't first trust him, she's not stepping in obedience. It must be trust first and then obedience. Why must it be trust first? Because on our own, we can never be righteous. Uh, on our own, we can never fulfill the second half of this psalm. If the fear of the Lord was only doing what he said to do, being righteous, all of us would fall short. Not just once, not just twice, but daily. And so yes, righteousness, obedience is a part of fearing the Lord, but it must come second because if it comes first, we're all going to fall short. N none of us will be good enough to, to earn the ear of God, to earn the eyes of God, to earn the affection and the favor of God. We all fall short of the righteousness of God. But in trust, God has made a way for us to be made righteous. In trusting him, in trusting more specifically Jesus, the son of God, God has made a way for us to receive the righteousness of Jesus for Jesus to make us righteous. 2 Corinthians 5, 21 says that God made him who, who knew no sin. He was without sin. He's talking about Jesus. 
God made him who knew no sin to be our sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And John 3.16 says, whoever believes in him, believes in Jesus, will not perish, will not be trapped by their fears, will not be overcome by their distress, will not be overcome by their debts. Whoever believes in him will not perish, but will have eternal life. Fearing God means doing what he says, but we will never do it enough. We'll never be good enough to earn his favor. We must first be made righteous by Jesus, and then we can follow in his righteousness. And the way we are made righteous by Jesus is trusting him, is believing him. That that Jesus came and he lived the perfect righteous life as a human, as our representative, in our place. And then he died on the cross as our representative for the punishment for our sins. I've struggled with this at times, like, how can Jesus do that for all of us, right? How can his representation of righteousness be be good for me 2,000 years later, right? And the Bible says that he is a part of the team of humanity, he is the firstborn among all humans. And, and he gets to live as a representative. Th- think about any soccer fans here. Should I call it football? Soccer fans, right? Women's World Cup is starting, I think, this week. So if, maybe, maybe hockey, right? Think about this. If, if the game ends in a tie, at least at some level, playoffs or I don't know, extra time, well, okay, but then it, if it's still a tie, penalty kicks, right? Or penalty shots, they send out, I think, five, five players. Now, if, if my team sends out five players, and I'm not one of them, but they go out and they score all their penalty kicks and the other team only scores three, my team wins. Let me ask you this. Am I a winner? But I didn't go out there and kick the penalty kicks. No, they were just a representative for our entire team. Their accomplishment is credited to me as well right? That's what Jesus has done. He's come to live as our representative. His accomplishment can be credited to me if I trust that I'm a part of his team by by his acceptance, not by my earning. That his righteousness will be given to me. Therefore, I'm righteous before God. I, I, I can actually do this because of what Jesus has done. And then on the cross as my representative, he takes my record of debt and and, and nails it to the cross with him so that God doesn't see me and think, well, we still gotta punish him for his sins. No, no, that punishment was done via my representative, Jesus. And because Jesus rose from the dead and is alive today at 1133 on July 16th, Because he is alive today, he is able to offer that transaction. Hey, I will take your sin and give you my righteousness. Well, what do I have to do, Jesus? Trust me. Trust me. Do you trust me? Do you trust that spiritually Jesus is who he says he is and that is what he will do? If we trust him, then... We obey in righteousness. 
Like I said, Psalm 56 was written during captivity. This is what it says. David wrote in verse 3, When I am afraid, what does it say? Verse, uh, 56 verse 3, did I give you that? Dadgummit. When I am afraid, he says, I put my trust in you. In God whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? He was still in captivity. He could still die. But in trusting God, all of his fears were removed. And he knew that no matter the outcome, God would deliver him, whether in this life or the next. That no matter the outcome, God would rescue him, whether in this life or the next. That no matter the outcome, God was for him and doing what was best for him in this life or the next. Fearing the Lord is how we taste and see that the Lord is good. Y'all, I, I don't want anything else for you. I believe what the Bible says, that it, it's greater than anything else. We fear the Lord as we first trust him and then follow him in obedience. And the more we trust him and follow and trust and follow, it's a progressive growth closer and closer and closer and closer in him. Do you want it? As we wrap up, I, I, I just want to be honest and say I struggle with some of this because I, I look at, at some of these verses, like verse 17, when the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. And sometimes I'm like, hey God, I, 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 I'm still in the trouble. Am I not righteous enough? Do I need to do more? Am I not praying enough? Am I not reading enough, God? I, I read, um, he's near to the brokenhearted. I'm like, God, I'll be honest, I'm pretty crushed right now and I don't feel you're very near. So sometimes I struggle because I read this and I'm like, it, this, this is, it's, it's not working, right? It's not, it's not adding up. Anyone else ever feel that way with God? Like, hey, hey, dude, it's right here. What's going on? I think it's a valid feeling. And I think God, God's big enough to handle those feelings that we have. We don't need to hide those feelings or act like we have it all together. Just be honest. Come on. God's big enough to, to handle them. But what we see in Scripture is that God is for our best, right? One of my favorite verses in, in all the Bible, right there in Psalm 56, at the end of verse 9, this I know that God is for me. He's in prison with people that want to kill him, and he's like, dang it, I know that he's for me. This is good. He might die, though. So how, how is... God will always do what is best for you. And as anyone who loves anyone else knows, sometimes what is best for them is letting them struggle a little bit. Sometimes what is best for them is letting them go through the fire. Sometimes what will lead them most to where they want to go is letting them skin their knees and try to get up and skin their knees and try to get up and, right? That, that, that's Sometimes God, he, what's best for you and for me is to know him and to know him deeply, to taste and see that he is good. And sometimes to get us there, he will allow struggles and he will allow suffering. And even then, he may allow death. 
Because Paul tells us to die is to gain. It's to be delivered ultimately from the sufferings and hardships of this world and to be in the presence of God. The reason I struggle with this is because I read it and I say, God, you're not answering out of my troubles because I have a way that I think God should be answering me out of my troubles and he hasn't done it the way I think. I think deliverance looks like this. Therefore, if this has not happened, God, you have fallen short. You have let me down. That, that's on me, y'all. That, that's on us in those moments. We've got to trust that he's good. We've got to trust what the Bible tells you. He's for you. And he will do what is best for you. Fear the Lord, trust him, and then follow him in obedience because that is how you will taste and see that he is good more than you can even imagine. That's what, that's what we want for you. That's what I want. That's what I've been praying for myself and praying for us. And the Bible tells us it's here for us. We can know God in this way. He will come to your rescue. He will hear. He will respond. He will deliver. Fear the Lord. Trust Him. And then follow Him in obedience. We will taste and see that He is good. Thanks for tuning in to the Austin Life Church Podcast. To help support us, please take a second to rate and review us on iTunes and visit us at austinlifechurch.com.